Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. For millennia, idleness and laziness have been regarded as vices. We're all expected to work to survive and get ahead, and devoting energy to anything but labor and self-improvement can seem like a luxury or a moral failure. Far from questioning this conventional wisdom, modern philosophers have worked hard to develop new reasons to denigrate idleness. In Idleness, the first book to challenge modern philosophy's portrayal of inactivity, Brian O'Connor argues that the case against an indifference to work and effort is flawed, and that idle aimlessness may instead allow for the highest form of freedom. Brian O'Connor is professor of philosophy at University College Dublin. He's the author of Adorno and Adorno's Negative Dialectic, and most recently, Idleness, a Philosophical Essay. I give you Brian O'Connor. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be here, Scott. So this is the for your book, Idleness, a Philosophical Essay, is the first essay I've seen on idleness to my you know that i've ever encountered so i don't do you did you check that were you like hey is this am i original or unique in this regard i think it's the first philosophical book on idleness but there is actually a well-known uh, essay by bertrand russell written in 1930 called in praise of idleness uh it's a very nice essay i recommend it to everyone it's a free-ranging essay not all of which is about idleness uh but it's a very nice place to start if people become hooked on the question of idleness. So I, you might be aware of this Nietzsche quote that all philosophy is the perf- is, is just the personal confession of the philosopher. So as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, what motivates you for this? Were you, first of all, the irony can't be lost on you. You can't be very idle to publish an yeah. academic essay on idleness. And I'm wondering, were you the kid that was very idle and people were always chiding you about and you're like well one day i'm gonna get a phd in philosophy and show them or were you the person that your parents never let you be idle and and you're like hey now i can do it i mean what you know how where what's your life story with the topic yeah well i mean i tend to think of myself as somebody who doesn't particularly enjoy hard work but those who are nearest and dearest to me tell me i'm quite wrong about that so i don't know what the truth of my actual personal attitude to idleness is you know being a philosophy professor of course you find yourself drawn to questions that are thrown up in the history of philosophy the texts that you like to read throw up problems and i just encountered one or two surprising uh, hard uh, criticisms of idleness among some of the philosophers that i read and i thought well that would be interesting to pursue but, you know, the quote you start with there from Nietzsche is, a, is really a great way to think about what motivates uh, me or any other author. If we're going beyond just purely scholarly recording of a concept and we actually feel there's something important in it, yeah, it must it must resonate with who we think we are or what's important to us personally. I uh, think that I had a very strong kind of reaction to an economic cycle, which certainly was strong in Europe uh, and I I suppose in America, I I wouldn't want to say for sure, is the great cycle that led to our dreadful recession a while ago. And just prior to that, particularly in the small country I live in, which became enormously wealthy, Ireland, that is, there was an upsurge of economic activity and all kinds of activity. There was an enormous amount of uh, investment by people in their personal uh, personal achievements, their accumulation of wealth, none of which I found in any way objectionable. So I don't, I don't take any old-fashioned view about that. But what was really very frightening was when the tide went out, when the recession hit, people who had sort of invested themselves and their identities in their work and in their accumulations of wealth really had nowhere to go existentially. And there were, there were you know, tremendous tragedies, people not only losing property and jobs, but mental health crises, uh, a a spike in suicide rates. 
So you have to wonder what it is that people were uh, so caught up in when work became this uh, do or die kind of identity. Uh, that's one thing. The, another thing that I think we see is people increasingly worrying about the level of intrusion of work into their daily lives. Just before I came online with you, Scott, I saw a, a, a very familiar news story on the BBC website where they talk about people and the, what is it, the right to disconnect, people who don't want to have to receive emails over the weekend and so on. There's a sense in which work is everywhere. And there's a, there's a kind of a, 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 a low murmur of desire, I think, among people to just have a bit more time where they don't really have to do anything much at all. I, I think all of those things are things I feel. And I was very pleased that I could, if you like, bring those feelings into the more traditional kind of philosophical scholarly uh, space, which is, is, which is really what the book set out to be. Now, you offer kind of a genealogy of, of at least modern thought and, and mainly kind of continental thought on the topic of idleness and work. Do you, and so some of the threads you just mentioned in the popular consciousness are, are there in previous eras, but is it like they're on steroids or something? I mean, is that, I mean, are we at a particularly acute time, you know, with sort of hyper capitalism social media like the desire for self-actualization agreement that this stuff is like a tsunami level of what's what's been there throughout modern life you'd have to wonder wouldn't you i i have to be careful about what i say here because i'm not a social media user myself but from what i from what i see it seems to have increased people's desire to kind of make themselves visible all the time and and to be visible doing things and to be doing things that are interesting and impressive. So, you know, that kind of that kind of uh, desire for visibility, it isn't strictly uh, translatable into purely capitalistic terms. Of course, capitalism imposes other kinds of imperatives on us to work hard and accomplish and to rise up the ladder. But even when we're outside the space of, of work, you know, it looks like there is a kind of a, a a pressure we feel to keep ourselves in the in the eyes of others. I imagine that many people now, again, speaking as somebody who's not a social media user, see their vacation as an opportunity to kind of enhance their Facebook page or or whatever it is. And it's it's like the old idea of a holiday, uh, a vacation of pure time off is kind of lost. Yeah, you contrast what you discuss in the book under the term idleness with with leisure because it's it, it the contemporary leisure activity it tends to be this sort of i work hard i play hard right so yeah exactly so our leisure becomes one more way of perfecting something or being teleological or goal driven or or like you're saying like the, 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 we all have these you know, people say that Augustine created, you know, with the confessions, this notion of the inner self, and now we can't get by without it. Now it's like we have the inner self and the avatar self, right? So people are always cultivating this avatar self. So it it, it becomes work upon work upon work, right? That's that's really fascinating. I never I never thought of it in terms of the avatar avatar self, but I know exactly what what you mean. That does, yeah, that's that's very insightful. That seems to be a an extension of our identity that it brings its own kind of obligations, the obligation to keep itself. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's very true. It fascinates me. You teach at the at university college Dublin, right? Mm, that's right. Now, my guess is most of your students are social media users. I, I think so. I mean, as far as I know, they, they use the social media when I'm lecturing to them. So, yeah. Is that I, like a cross-cultural experience? I mean, are you, <laughs> like, I mean, that seems like you're inhabiting two different worlds. Yeah. I, I, what, what, can, what can you do? Uh, I mean, uh, by the time I try to catch up with them on those things, they'd probably have moved ahead to the latest uh, ICT anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you start in the book with Immanuel Kant and his critique of idleness, which is along the lines 
of, I mean, one of the main threads, you think of his categorical imperative, right? That if you're really going to be autonomous and have this kind of morality that, that works everywhere for everyone, you've got to be able to take the, you know, it's, it's sort of like Oliver Wendell Holmes's quote, you know, bad cases or tough cases make bad law. So you want to make your ethical choices into these universal things that everyone would do, you know, at, at every place in time. And of course, if we were, idol this would just be a bad thing right he, he he thinks that this would just be ruinous to the human condition it, we would lose what's highest about ourselves in in his conception right yeah that that's right um I, you know and of course it doesn't sound crazy uh one of the things that i enjoyed about uh the book is that again you know at one level it is a standard philosophical work where you've got your texts and the usual challenging philosophers but I picked those philosophers not only because they talked about idleness, but because they spoke about it in ways that would probably resonate with people. Most people would dread having to read Kant, but they understand the insight precisely as you've explained it there, Scott, which is uh, that there's, there are ruinous consequences in, that it pre- in idleness and that it prevents us from achieving the very best for ourselves. It's it's a very I mean it's a very attractive and at the same time unsettling image of what we are because it it gives idleness this sort of terrifying side where we fear we might just be wasting away our lives. But actually, when we think about what it means to use a life well as opposed to waste, or how to make ourselves to use the language of the philosopher worthy of of our existence, these things become a little bit less uh, clear and a little less compelling. So it's like Kant, along with the other philosophers discussed, kind of grab hold of some everyday views about things, but give them the highest theoretical kind of formulations. So I'm not so sure what it means to to lead a life to the very best. And, and, and other than our usual social judgment of it, why it's so bad to not lead a life to the full? You know, what? how are we going to get at the basic sort of... Uh, value set that ensures that that's the right way of thinking about things. Yeah. And this is the sort of great enlightenment promise. And yet something that maybe we think of now as spurious, right? That there's this rationality qua rationality, right? That, that there's just this naked reason Mm. that you kind of get in touch with, like in the platonic realm or the forms or something that this is, these are, these are contextual and there may be cross context applications, but you got to figure that out. It doesn't just present itself, obviously. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there is so much to admire in the basic enlightenment move of trying to, to see whether there are features of our lives that we used to think were just pure nature, whether in fact they're the product of human arrangements. And as products of human arrangements, we might ask whether we could make them more reasonable and more rational. You know, I, all of that in principle is uh, is wholly positive. I, I think the difficulty is it can overextend its reach, uh, and it it is it is not clear that every feature of our sense of what we would like to do with our time or the way we might lead our lives can be captured in terms of of a rational project of something that it is, you know, rationally compelling for us to take seriously. That that's a so you're right to, to frame this as a kind of enlightenment challenge. And and my 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 book in that sense, without being one of these anti enlightenment tracks, just sort of picks at the, uh, you know, the, the the particular thread of argument which says that every feature of our uh, our, our self conception must be in some sense rationally justifiable to us. Yeah, you have this great su- summary of Kant here, where you're talking about the critique of practical reason. And you say that he tries to explain how we're motivated to achieve worthiness in spite of the way it opposes our tendencies to idleness and pleasure generally. He argues Mm -hmm. that reason rather than desire provides us with the very possibility of the kind of freedom that counts. And there it seems that the quest for freedom is one where unless you're at war with your inclinations, you're sort of a a dreadful person, right? That that, that Mm -hmm. real duty is disconnected from desire so that you can't really desire you know desire is disconnected from morality and and something that many have thought is important desiring the good i mean that that's not reliable at all (laughs) yeah you're absolutely you're absolutely right so 
Uh, I mean, that's the picture. That that is the the basic uh, picture, um, and it is extraordinary. And you know, often people will think, and there are a lot of people who try to rescue Kant to take him away from what seems to be like such an extreme commitment to reason. Uh, but in in the end, Kant believes, and, and it actually shows up in the text you mentioned, the critique of practical reason, that there is this inner tendency towards reasoning that we can never, or rationality, that we can never fully turn our backs on. You know, we might throw ourselves into a, a life of desire, or we might even say, from now on, I'm only going to do what's best for me, and I don't care about whether it conforms to morality. But he thinks that there is this this moral sensibility that expresses itself through reasons that would just nag at us anyway. It doesn't mean that it, it will win ever, but it will always nag at us. Uh, and that means that, that, that it has potentially kind of trump, trumping force over desire. You know, it's got, it's got the capacity to say, well, look, I'm the boss here. Uh, the dark desire doesn't have to be the boss. There's, I forget, I think it's the big chill where Jeff, the film where Jeff Goldberg, Goldberg's or Goldblum's character says a human being can get through a day without food or sex, but they can't get through a day without a good rationalization. And it, se- <laughs> it seems to me that, that I always think if Nietzsche and Augustine agreed on, agree on something, it must be true. And, and, and this idea, wow. this idea that, that the, re- the reason is, su- is superior to the passions seems completely crazy with so much of what we know about human nature <laughs> that, that oftentimes it seems like, Reason is what lags behind and gives justification to what's, be, you know, beneath the tip of the iceberg, kind of thing, at least many days. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I guess we have to also recognize that where, where Kant is coming from it does resonate with a certain level. I mean, one of the things I guess many people have found hard about Kant is the thing that probably is most true about him. It's on the idea of, of duty. And the word duty sounds harsh. It sounds like doing something that isn't exactly the first thing you would do if if given free choice. But we can experience our duties towards our friends or our loved ones uh, or our communities or whatever it might be. And sometimes that isn't just a matter of desire, but of, of doing it because we know it's the right thing to do, even when it's inconvenient. Or in conflict with certain desires we have. Yeah, exactly. That that that's right. And uh, so there there is there is that sense that I mean Kant is very good at showing that if you try to base a moral system on desire alone, you're just going to have as many different systems as there are human desires. And interestingly, most of us wouldn't be comfortable with that as an explanation of uh, of morality. So. That kind of swings the argument a little bit back towards, well, let's have another look at, at, at reason and the role it plays in underpinning our sense of, of duty. But, you know, that doesn't mean we have to go all the way with Kant and some of the, the philosophers that you, you, you clearly uh, have a great f- feeling for yourself, possibly try to find that alignment uh, a little bit. Uh, closer to the space of desire, a kind of a sense of well-being and, you know, wholesome involvement in what we do rather than a kind of disciplined control of ourselves. Yeah, we can imagine the good life certainly would involve moments where duty has to win out over some other desires and there's yeah. conflict. But to reduce the good life to to those moments seems... Uh, really like it would it would be a reductive a reductive life <laughs> yeah I, I mean as you put it there you, you really put your finger on the thing because Kant's moral philosophy isn't really about the good life it's just about what what makes a moral law so it it narrows the whole story uh or or at least says the only thing i'm interested here in in dealing with morality is what goes into making up a moral principle or, or a moral law whereas other philosophers, uh, you know, have have taken the broader view, as you say, with the idea of a of a good life. And many of Kant's contemporaries, who still had a sense that the good life was an important way of considering uh, morality, were shocked. Uh, you know, there's a there's a conception that sometimes people have of the history of philosophy, uh, is that once Kant arrived on the scene, he basically blew away all the other sort of ways of thinking about morality. 
Uh, he didn't. He, he, he had plenty of critics in his own lifetime. Uh, um, but of course, he's achieved a, a, a high level of academic significance. And perhaps that's why we tend to think of him as, a, as the kind of the champion of, of, the, of a particular period of philosophy. So if Kant doesn't like idleness because it goes against our ideal self, Hegel mm. rejects it, you argue, because it's against the actual self, right? Rather than some, time, some time kind of mm. transcendental ideal, it's a social reality that, that, look, we're at a high point in history where, you know, the, the, the kind of Western, you know, sort of socioeconomic order that we have, which allows for interdependence and, and mutual recognition and responsibilities and these things are are who we are and, and and to sort of and i idleness goes against the stream right it's sort of some idealist you know it, it it's it's maybe like the noble savage or something mm. uh, which which both i guess Kant and hegel in in different ways talk about but it, it's a rejection not of necessarily the the ideal of the autonomous enlightenment self but it's it's a rejection of just where we are in history i mean you you you, you got to be what you are right yeah that's right it, it it's it's a it's a fantasy that we can't take seriously in Hegel's view. Uh, it's it's not even a, a fantasy that has much merit when you look at it. Some people's version of the idle life might be something like the Garden of Eden, where you know there's just an effortless sociability and uh, just everything is there as as required. But when Hegel sort of tr- paints the picture of what this idle life will be like. It's clear what he what he thinks of of it. It it would be it would be an ignoble savage. It wouldn't even be the kind of interesting figures of a, a Rousseauian uh, uh, landscape. These are peculiar, solitary, dark, brooding figures who who only work to meet the most basic needs and are wholly unimpressive. Uh, and those people are effectively not a not a higher or more romantic version of ourselves, but just a debased version of ourselves. And thank heavens we've moved beyond what they are. So that's right. The actual self uh, is is only is only playing with 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 ideas when it imagines a kind of idle world like that. And that's because right in previous forms of existence. You don't have the much space for idleness, right? You're you're either working for subsistence and just to get by, or you have the mass, like you talk about the master-slave dynamic, where you have these imbalances of power, and there's not the space to reflect on on self-actualization and who you are and things like this. So, so the capacity that we can even fantasize about these things mm. as an as, as something that could even happen is. It, it's not. It's only possible because of the social arrangements we have, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's how he sees it, and it, it, it's a kind of a it's a kind of an internal rebellion. But it is is it is is it is kind of an empty, so to speak, negation of of what we are. It's it has no reality other than just a kind of let's take what we are now and you know posit the opposite. But that that has no. Uh, actuality at all um it it has it has nothing other than you know notional existence yeah that, that's that's very true i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, 
John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And then you also, in that same chapter, you you, you deal with Marx, who, like, in, in many ways, with Hegel, he sort of flips Hegel on his head. And Marx, for different reasons, is just as as suspicious of idleness, right? And And he just... He can't think that, I mean, he, I guess he can think of it as a sort of capitalist form of decadence because you're so alienated from labor and everything and things that, that, that basically you can imagine wanting to escape the grind. But once you're kind of enlightened and you, and, and we share the corp, the collective means of production and we're working one for another, that work would be this sort of great thing. And, and, and to rebel against it would just be, would be selfish and, and, and vacuous. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I felt slightly uneasy about being uh, critical of Marx because I, I guess uh, I find that the even though I see it as a romantic ideal, I find a great appeal in the idea of people working almost on the, the model of an extended vam- family, a cohesive community where I actually enjoy crafting my goods or whatever they might be because I know that the person down the road, uh, whatever, will find some use for them and will, you know, bring some kind of advantage to their lives. Yeah, and- this is what it seems like St. Benedict, right, in late antiquity, you know, yeah. with the Ben Benedictine rule, you know, as world as antiquity's collapsing, they're trying to, you know, live this sort of uh, heavenly life on earth where they're, you know, they make much more than they need and they can bless this chaos-ridden society. I mean, there's something like that there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's it's very it's very appealing. Um, and it has it has all kinds of positive uh, theoretically at least ramifications because of course one other thing that motiv- motivates it is that it's a better type of work. You know, if I'm working on a kind of a skilled thing, if I'm a carpenter or or a baker or or something like that, um, and I'm not working in some gigantic uh, factory uh, just doing detail work on one part of the of the product. My, I can I can develop my skills and I can do it in my own way. And my own, the way I make bread is going to be different from the way you make bread. And people will appreciate the different kinds of things we bring, and our personalities are, in a sense, out there in the in the things we make. And that cures, in some ways, what he sees as the modern phenomenon of alienation, where we're constantly anonymous and we make no impact, even in terms of our productivity, because we're just working to uh, according to a blueprint where our own distinctive personalities are are precluded I, I i find all of that quite appealing where i find marx's imagination begins to break down though is that he can really only endorse a kind of associability in terms of work and uh doesn't really even for a moment entertain the idea of associability that you might have where there is idleness where people have no particular thing uh, that they feel they have to do we're spending more time uh, together uh, and not sort of seeking labor opportunities because of their altruistic uh, ends Th- those kinds of uh, idle moments bring their own kind of sociability that that uh, Marx doesn't consider and i when when i what i have in mind there i mean uh, there are many images we we would have of people simply sitting around there are there are cultures who who know how to sit around and enjoy each other's company but marx has really taken the step into the industrial world and wants to retranslate it all back into the terms of a kind of a better type of community yeah and also you know this is maybe post marxist people you know the Frankfurt School. There's, you know, this is this is this is the Achilles' heel of Marx, right? It doesn't take this notion of personal freedom and subjectivity very seriously. Like that, you know, that this that that is so prominent in the in modern life. You know, it doesn't seem like it seems like those horses are out of the barn, right? You're not <laughs> yeah. you're not going to. It doesn't seem like you're going to reconstitute humans on this sort of collective 
uh, thing where we're just going to whistle while we work and kind of right, <laughs> right, be, sure. well, it'd be like the Borg, uh, you know, yeah. it's Star Trek, right? I mean, this is, but, but there's, you know, you talk about this attempt later to see, to balance out like play as idleness, right? That, that which you also sort of don't think really works quite, quite well, right? Because it's sort of, again, it gets back to the, it's this kind of, uh, that song, like, right, everybody's working for the weekend, right? You, you, you kind of, it, it, the, the play it becomes just part of the sort of system we're kind of under, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the notion that play might be a solution to the problem of work is an interesting one. I mean, and you mentioned the Frankfurt School. The philosopher I look at most closely is, is Herbert Marcuse, who in uh, a really incredible book, Eros and Civilization, tries to tease out what play might uh, do for us in terms of releasing us from alienated labor uh, as such. And what he wants to do is to think that, well, what, what's, what's attractive about play notionally is that it involves a certain kind of spontaneity, but it's not a purposeless spontaneity. So I guess if you're involved in playing your favorite sport, uh, you know, there's there's always improvisation. You have to respond and react. You have you have the opportunity to make moves based on your own best judgment. So there's freedom in it, and yet it's not purposeless because it has a kind of point. Uh, so imagine if work was like that. Now, why why would I want to why would I want to object to that? Well, I object to it because it just seems to be wishful thinking. It it might even be in a sense worse than wishful thinking it's actually quite difficult to understand what work would be if it was like that, where it was effectively unstructured, where, uh, you know, the kind of effort and concentration on, on a task that is distinct to work became playful. So I struggle to kind of, as I suppose one must almost, I struggle to make sense of the notion of a kind of utopian work, which was like play. But it would be it would be a world where there's where there was there were no sort of strict boundaries between work and t- free time or pleasure and labor. It would all be a space, a continuous space of play. Yeah. And, and there. Yeah, I think that the serendipity, I mean, in the kind of idleness you're talking about, that's really open to influence and not controlling kind of open handed. You could imagine some great discoveries made that way or some, oh, but you're right. Like if, if you've got to fix an aqueduct in antiquity or something, or if you've got to, you know, work on an infrastructure project, mm-hmm. you kind of, there's just some stuff where you got to grin and bear it, you know, close your eyes and think of England kind of moments, right? <laughs> I mean, you just kind of got to, it's not the, the way we, we live, you just can't, it's just going to require a little bit of, of sweat from the brow. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that's right. And you can have, uh, uh, you know, and Marcuse does his best with this, you can have complex psychological theories about what it is that has made us kind of such self-monitoring, uh, uh, self-severe workers. And can we can we change that psychology? But uh, if you want the work to get done in the way that Marcuse doesn't want to abandon, then, yeah, you have that issue. You mentioned an, an, uh, an interesting point there that that's sort of we should just say a little more about, which is you mentioned serendipity. That's one of the what's one of the things that people often produce as a kind of a as what they think will be an attractive uh, defensive idleness, which is, you know, if you have that kind of time away from work, sometimes you get your best ideas. So in that respect, work become or sorry, leisure or idleness or time off. It develops a kind of utilitarian right, character. right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know there, there are there are fascinating discussions in, uh, in you know HR type literature about the value of time off. You know, people might envy and rightly uh, friends and or neighbors who who work in companies or or whatever where they have it seems quite a lot of time off. But generally speaking, the companies that give them time off have calculated that. That's good for the company, and uh, if it's good for the worker, well, so be it. But that's not the objective. Yeah, yeah. It, this is the the sort of in these kinds of calculations, right? There's no space for for Kant's, you know, 
ethical king of ends, right? Everybody's an end, not a means to an end. Everybody in the system's a means to an end. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's really that's that's a very good thought. That that's absolutely it, isn't it? Uh, that even when you think you're being treated uh, as an end, you know, and that's in a way that's the that's the queasiness. You, I won't name any companies, but we we all know some of the famous companies that provide their workers what what looks almost like home away from home with you know playstations and crashes and and well and what um bean bags and so on but in the and they feel like they're treated as human beings and you know it, 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 of course that would it would be it'd be just uh argumentative to say they aren't but the reality is they're being treated as as uh, as en- as ends uh, only so that they can be good means towards the um particular uh ends of the company itself yeah it's it's interesting you in the conclusion of the book you develop your own sort of constructive notion of idleness and you talk about how it's different than autonomy right mm-hmm. that you you use a term i think is it autocracy or autoc- auto auto Autarchy, autarky, yeah. Autarky. So it's so it's yeah. not self-law, it's self-rule, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It you know, it's it's difficult to sort of frame it under the right term there, but I I I thought I it was important to say, well, philosophers think that when we're dealing with freedom, if you like the gold standard is autonomy. You know, we're only talking about compromised or you know, uh, confused versions of freedom if they aren't autonomy, say many philosophers, because autonomy is the ideal of complete self-control, of self-regulation, of operating under life plans, of operating under, uh, you know, principles that are are distinctly your own. But, But when we look at the various views about autonomy that emerge from the philosophers we've been chatting about here from Kant and from Hegel. Often that notion of autonomy is, is strictly related to social usefulness. And that, that suggests that the freedom that it, it, it names is not inseparable from the kind of actions that are socially required of us. And in that light, idleness looks like it has its own peculiar space as a kind of freedom so it, it it is a kind of self-governance. The the idler, notionally at least, is doing whatever they want. They're not being driven by the need to perform or to make themselves useful, uh, and they feel free. And and I think that many people, when they and I, and I think it's it's the case that many people will will claim that they feel an appeal for idleness, even if they are rarely able to, you know actually embrace it they will say that's what they like about it, is that they, they it's the notion of just doing your own thing in your own way uh doing it on your own terms or not doing it if you don't feel like it uh, and so it contrasts rather strictly with autonomy in some of its more uh philosophical formulations stanley harawas the ethicist and theologian at duke says that you know the kind of the Enlightenment Project is the great narrative that sells itself as not a narrative. So it's sort of oh. says, I'm not a tradition. We're not a tradition. You know, we're different sort of approaches to tradition and stories that say we're not stories. This is just reason. But it yeah. is. But it is as legislating is what you're saying. You, it is. It, it, there's kind of an illusion that, OK, this this. Yeah, this autonomy is not. A, it's I'm fitting into a sort of system, a constellation of values that I didn't necessarily choose. And and. And they might be productive, and I might my needs and commitments might be served, not served to certain degrees. But I'm still, I, I, I'm still, uh, I'm working for the man here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Even yeah, yeah like, uh, there's not a, that's that's inescapable, and that will always have this sort of sort of feeling of of something on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think so. Um, I think I think that's right, and it was it's kind of interesting to draw it out as a tradition, uh, the the Enlightenment tradition. Um, you know, it's it's a it was a bit of a surprise to me as as the work developed on the book uh, that this particular worry about idleness that the philosophers I discussed really wasn't prevalent prior to them. Now, every, anyone listening will think, hey, wait a minute, you know, idleness and laziness have always been condemned, and they're absolutely right. But the reasons why they were criticised uh, prior to the era we might 
called enlightenment. I think good historians are not worried about calling it the enlightenment. Um, it's because they saw it as uh, and as as a, a theologian yourself, you'll know this uh, that they saw idleness as placing us in the way of sinful degeneration. That if you are idle, your your kind of commitment to your prayerfulness or your or your faith or or, or whatever the particular um, you know strictures of your religion were would be loosened. Um, the idle mind. The idle mind is the devil's workshop. Exa- exactly. Exactly. And that phrase comes up in so many different forms uh, in 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 cultures that are even quite diverse. Uh, you know, the criticism of idleness, there is a there's a standard criticism of idleness, of course, that, that you know, idle people don't deserve to be, you know, the idle should not be fed and so on. And of course, there's a kind of a, an economically, there's an intuitive economic truth to that. The anthropological one is intriguing. That if you're idle, you, you basically go to bits, and uh, criminality, sinfulness, and so on are, are are lurking. But when we get to Kant, that's not really the story. The, uh, the story is by being idle, you miss out on so much. You know, you 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 have walked away from the opportunity to make yourself a morally worthy being. And the contemporary phrase, you're not living your best life now, Kant would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's just it. I, and, you know, there are, there are these ideas that are very strong. I know we're sort of maybe going back to the beginning here, but there are people who think, I mean, I, you see biographies by successful business, uh, businessmen, businesswomen, mainly men, I think, who, who would, you know, be happy to title their book, a life well lived and so on, you know, and it's, it's, it's really quite uh, striking that um, for them, idleness would have been an absolutely nightmarish route, road to have taken because it would have gotten in the way of this life well lived where they built their empires and they accumulated their holdings and so forth. So, yeah, there, there's a distinctive move during the Enlightenment um, uh, when it comes to idleness. Previous thinkers uh, aligned their conception of idleness with the with the uh, the vision that I think uh, religious thinkers also had, which was idleness leads to uh, moral degeneration. You have this great definition of freedom, the 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 freedom of idleness. You say the notion of idle freedom entails a life lived without effective interference in our motivations by visions of a superior version of ourselves, especially when that version is indebted to ideas of productivity and restless self-occupation. In this way, idle freedom has its content. So this is this kind of live your best life now always impinges on the sense of freedom, right? It's a new, Mm. it's always a form of constraint, you know, it's always a, a sort of, uh, the the carrot held out in front, or or the rabbit out in front of the greyhound, right? They, they always say that that never allows for any sense of being at rest. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I, and I feel it too. I, this is, I guess, this is the thing, isn't it? We we are we are sent to school. We are sent to there to learn things, to perform. Uh, to we're given set tasks. We're rewarded if we were any good at those tasks. Uh, eventually, we become good at, you know, undertaking tasks without without teacher overseeing them. And, you know, by the time we reach adulthood and so forth, um, it's it's clear that the capacity for idleness that we might otherwise have had is, is effectively, uh, you know, overtaken by this capacity for ta- task and reward uh, that is so deeply ingrained in us in our in our in our upbringing and social formation. I have a friend who's working on a book right now uh, about spirituality and, and a sense of like the inner child. And she she was on a sabbatical and she was taking a walk and saw this fence. And she's like, that fence looks like it needs a stick, you know, dragged against it. And then she thought, what if somebody sees me dragging a stick against it? Well, that will look silly. And also she's like, if I was when I was a kid, I would have just taken the stick and dragged it against it. There would have been this openness to just that. Mm. But this, yeah. like this self-censoring and this kind of it, it, constant interrogation, the censor on the wall sort of thing, it, it seems to be, you're arguing, really in competition with a certain sense of freedom. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's true. I think that's, uh, I mean, it, again, it goes back to your point about the development of the inner self, the Augustinian 
inside. Uh, but the inner self is always, in a way, a social self. Uh, the self that looks at itself looks at itself through the eyes that it has been socialized to to look at itself with as well. It's it's never purely private. So it probably is um, the case that even those those kind of spontaneous spontaneous acts of silliness uh, that might have just seemed just right at a certain point uh, fall under this. Uh, inner gaze that we've been socialized with. You, you, in the last page of the book, you say the idle self is it is a self that's at home with itself. And as I was reading, I was thinking, you know, last year was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and this was Luther's great insight, right? That the law, that the oughts can't ever really give someone a sense of freedom and peace. That that when something is an external constraint, you know, what, what St. Paul says is the law increases the trespass, right? You you say, don't step on the grass, you want to step on the grass, right? So all, right. These, all these external constraints, even ones that, you know, someone like Kant promises, well, but if, if it's self-chosen by reason, it's autonomy. No, it still seems like a don't step on the grass, right? And it creates this human restlessness mm. that really, that, 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 I think you're saying idleness offers a respite from it's even and even if it's just a notional uh, moment away from that kind of uh, experience, uh, it, it it is is something. It's like a, it's some kind of residue of of freedom that still kind of plays on our on our on our mind. Uh, it it is um, it's clear that any real uh, engagement with idleness is is you know again that goes back to the point Hegel tried to hit us with that any real engagement with idleness is not possible for for the actual selves that we've become and it seems in a sense that the the game is up uh, for those who might try to make a case for idleness I I would agree with that in the sense that anyone who would write a book saying here's you know here's why idleness is great and here's how we can embrace it isn't taking seriously. Uh, the depth of our social formation, and indeed, uh, is is guilty probably of a, a hypocrisy that I, I I think you might have been kind enough to hint I avoided at the beginning of this interview, because you know we are all such hard workers these days. Uh, it's not just because we want to be, but because we have, in a sense, just become the kind of beings who want to be through the socialization process. So being at home with ourselves will be, it's the image, I guess, of where the things one is feels compelled to do are just those things that resonate with with who, who we really uh, are and our sense of who we are isn't determined by the ever-shifting opinion of what others uh, make of us. I, I, you know, it would be utopian to say that that's possible. But my feeling is that the, kind of the experience people have that idleness might be a good thing is probably based on notions a bit like that. Yeah, I mean, everything we know, right, about human psychology and development says, like, if from age zero to two, we get clearly the message that acceptance is a kind of gift, right, that we're mm -hmm. accepted by our our parent, especially early on the mother, but then our, our family system, that, that psychologically we'll have some pretty good wherewithal. But if we get this message early on that acceptance as a reward, a conditional reward, it wreaks a lot of psychological havoc on us as we develop. And, and it seems like part of this being at home with the self is this thing that we, we is the matrix for healthy psychology developmentally early on, that, that there's this acceptance without being activity or achievement. You know, it's, it's rooted in being, not doing. And it mm -hmm. seems like idleness maybe are these moments where we can recapture that to, you know, nourish our souls. Uh, yeah, it's it's something very much along those lines. It's about not being invested in projects whose reality or substance or, or value isn't really in, if you like, in our control. You know, of trying to make an impression in spheres where what counts as a good impression is something that is ever shifting and uh, not within our, our our grasp. There's something you know desperate and. Uh, unsettling about a kind of experience which is based on that type of pursuit of, of good opinion. And, you know, we can think of, of idleness as something which is, is largely detached from that. Rousseau is quite interesting on these things. Rousseau is a very tricky philosopher because he says many things and not all of them 
add up to a kind of coherent perspective. But he has a, a number of sketches of a rural life. It's not of the noble savage, but I think he's imagining himself as somebody who's managed to escape from the, the hellishness of the city where there's nothing but judgment and social competition and where eventually even time itself loses its shape because you're free to act as you wish or not at, at any time. And that, that is a kind of an appealing and not, not necessarily utopian image of being at home with oneself. When your students get your syllabus, are they like, how do you expect this to be idle at all? Come on, you've loaded us up with work. Yeah, well, uh, that, that's a, that, that, that puts me in a bit of a fix, uh, that question. I, I, I would think I would try to take a professorial line on that and say, well, what the book tries to get you to do is to think about a social value. Uh, and when you've gone and done a good job of that, you, you have my full permission to be idle. Or or you could just say with Emerson, you know, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of the (laughs) narrow mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Brian, Brian, uh, Idleness, a philosophical essay is a great book. And thank you for spending some time talking with me about it. It's been a great pleasure, Scott. And thanks for taking the trouble to read my book and put such uh, challenging questions to me. Ah, Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Brian for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Idleness, a philosophical essay. It's well worth it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.